Thanks for tuning in to PLR Podcast for the second episode of, I guess, season two. I'm Alex, joined by Evan and Andy, as always. Hey. Our, our guest for today is Luna Community Care. So we're really looking forward to the interview with them. Um, and this will be my last interview in Rhode Island. I mean, not my last. Yeah, I guess my last interview, too. Last episode in Rhode Island for three months. Uh, so for the next three and a half months, I'll be coming in remotely from Russia via the interwebs, the Wi-Fi's, satellites, all that good stuff. I'll be, I'll be like a hologram. <laughs> uh, before we get started, I do want to plug a music compilation that has just come out called Our Providence. You can find it on Bandcamp. It is a fundraiser for Wide Awakes, which is a uh, mutual aid organization in Providence that's done a lot of stuff. We've tried to get Wide Awakes on the show too, but they keep uh, saying that there's logistical issues and we've got to keep pushing it and pushing it, which I understand a lot of mutual aid orgs have logistical issues, um, but we will get them on eventually. And I hope they get them on soon so that they can talk about this compilation. And I also want to promote uh, Carlos Romero, who has been on the show. Uh, they were one of the first guests that we had on the show, just started their own YouTube channel called The Nightmare Continues. The first episode came out today, this morning. And I got to say, I thought it was really good. Uh, whoever's doing the video editing, I don't know if it is Carlos, um, but the video editing is good. The topic is good. Uh, and I like that, you know, Carlos has typically been able to reach out to uh, younger punks, younger people that are involved in leftist politics and stuff. And so the more exposure that anybody can get, the better. So uh, really happy about Carlos's new project. Did, you, did either of you watch that today? Uh, I have not had a chance to see it yet, no. Yeah, I did. The production was fantastic. And uh feel like they're a natural, you know, it seemed really, it didn't seem like a first video. It seemed like, uh, like, like they have it going on. So I was really impressed. Yeah. I, I think he's going to do very, very well. Yeah, it, it was a great, great first episode. I'm looking forward to future episodes. Um, also going on today, obviously, is the beginning of the snowpocalypse, uh, which puts me in a really weird bind because I think a few hours ago, the governor announced that they were banning all motor travel tomorrow throughout the what? state, which is a problem for me because I have to get COVID tested in order to fly. Like I can't enter Helsinki or Russia without a negative COVID test. So I had to look up like the, like the, uh, uh, what is it? The exceptions for the motor vehicle thing. And I think I qualify under one of them but if i get stopped tomorrow trying to get my covid test i'll be damned but yeah well, if anyone stops you no matter where you're going just say that you're going home that's true or i could just say i work at a gas station that's what that's what david red Inc. recommended he's like just say that you work at a gas station and then you have to go because those emergency workers have to be there so pharmacists for example also have to be uh at the pharmacy a good idea and remember everybody it's always okay to lie to a cop always true 
Remember also, you don't need to buy five loaves of bread just because there's a one day snowstorm coming or two gallons of milk or, or five uh, packages of rolled toilet paper and, and all that. You don't have to drain the supplies at a store just because it's going to snow for a day. We live in New England. So like, even if tomorrow the roads are a shit show, by Sunday, they're going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't our first rodeo, but people tend to freak out and then way overspend. And, you know, then they're broke for the next few days or whatever. So don't don't do that. Don't do that. But you might be right. So if this storm eclipses the blizzard of 78, will boomers finally shut the fuck up about it? No, maybe. I remember, I remember my mom always bringing that up and kind of being jealous. Because for me, like right. as a kid, it was like, oh man, the ultimate snow day. You guys had the ultimate snow day in '78. I think they got like three days off school or something back then. It was like some ridiculous amount. But uh, unfortunately for kids today, this snowstorm falls right smack dab in the middle of a weekend. So they they are going to be back in school on Monday, and that always sucked oh. as a kid. The way things are, almost every school has, no, actually, I'm not exactly sure, but a lot of kids have uh, distance learning now anyway, so who knows if snow days even exist for some kids anymore. We had You had one snow day already, didn't you, Evan? Yep. Yeah. And we just did distance learning, so, yeah, no. They didn't even get the snow day. They made them learn from home. It's bullshit. <sighs> That's <laughs> Sucks for them. Sucks for you guys, too. Yeah. Did you see that thing I sent you about police uh, and National Guardsmen teaching schools because of teacher shortages that are uh, yes, down south? I did see that. That's how terrible. weird is that? Pretty weird. This is my gun. Weird enough that like this is the, what it looks like the track coach is the math teacher, but <laughs> he's like he's like if you got four balls and I throw seven of them at this kid here. How many balls I got left? <laughs> the coach teaching teaching math. Just calculus, but yeah. Calculus. Damn. I don't even know. I never took a calculus class in my life. I did algebra and algebra two, and then I was done with math. Kaput. And I I think I didn't even make it to that. I think I took pre-algebra until the teachers were just kind of giving up on me and being like, all right, you get you get a passing grade, just get the fuck out of class. Yeah, something like that. I'm not good at math. Never been good at mathematics. Um, there's a lot going on the past two weeks. Uh, so what do you got, what do you got for us today? Um, well, one thing that's really cool that's going on right now is something called uh, Keep the Vote in uh, Rhode Island. And it's going to make permanent all of the... Uh, all of the changes that were made to like the voting laws in Rhode Island over COVID. So you'd be able to um, vote electronically or from home. You don't need to have a notary. You don't need to have a reason or a disability if you don't want to go in person and vote. So it's something that's um, going to make it easier for everybody to get involved in the, you know, quote unquote democratic process that we have here in the United States. Um, it's actually called let RI vote is the name of it. And it's got a bunch of, uh, backing from the uh, Rhode Island Latino uh, Coalition and uh, the AARP 
AFL, CIO, NAACP. Everybody likes this basically. So hopefully it uh, goes through and happens, but you can Google it and find out more information about it. And uh, yeah, so that's something important that's happening right now. It's pretty cool, but it seems kind of coincidental that it's happening at the same time that they're doing districting, redistricting. So like they're, they're taking away, uh, they're taking candidates out of their own district, like, like uh, Kimberly, but then also sort of like, you know, taking away the dish and then throwing a bone. It's like, oh, we're going to fundamentally re reimagine these districts in the state, but uh, here's a voting rights act that is based on stuff that's happening in the South. It's not even happening here, really. But it, but let's do it just for performance sake. Let's let's make it look good for performance sake. It is a cool thing. I mean, it it I guess it safeguards the possibility of whatever is happening in the South from happening here. And particularly, yeah. I think it's Georgia that 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 voting rights questions are coming up. So, you know, not all bad, but yeah. not all good either. Um. Anything that makes it easier for people to vote, I think, is a good thing. So, um, as you as you talked about, you know, with the way that they district things, they always manipulate that. Um, right. But for people that can't make it out, don't want to make it out, have um, different kinds of um, disabilities or any kind of difficulties, or, or even if they don't want to fucking get out of bed, they should still have the ability to vote. So, I think it's really cool. I don't understand why it's not all fucking electronic now. Like why you can't just do it on a hyper secure encrypted app that has like triple, quadruple, whatever the fuck authentication that you have to do. Scans your face, scans your fingerprint, scans your, I don't know, social security number. Like you got to input all the stuff in. Like we have the technology to do that kind of mass voting already. The problem is that I guess it gets complicated when considering people who are not like technically citizens of the United States voting. Uh, and that's where like Republicans, that's why Republicans won't allow something like that, that, and then the supposed fear of election hacking, which. Yeah. They're going to shit their pants no matter what, if it's a physical vote or an electronic vote, they're still going to make a whole shit storm unless it comes out in, the, in their benefit. So yeah, fuck them. we don't got to please them anyway. Fuck them. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, what was that? So you you shared something with me about uh, Jordan Peterson. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, I think I have it queued up right now. You uh, play a clip. Yeah, it's Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan. Um, it hit the news recently because they say a lot of really ignorant things. Uh, it's what you can expect from two ignorant white dudes you know late in life talking about things that have nothing to do with them but you can listen for yourself uh, i'll play it right now i am white actually that's a lie too i'm kind of tan and he was actually not he was sort of brown because I'm, I'm darker than you. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Neither of us are white. Well, I'm Italian. And I'm he was white. brown, not black. Well, isn't that weird? Yeah, it's this really the, weird. The black and white thing is so strange <laughs> because the shades are so... Tan and brown. There's such a spectrum of shades of people. Unless you're talking... <laughs> a spectrum of shades of people. It, it gets better. Talking to someone who is, like, 
100% African from the darkest place where they're not wearing any clothes all day and they've developed all that melanin to protect themselves from the sun. You know, it's even the term black is weird. It's a, it's a, and when you use it for people that are literally my color, it becomes very strange. Yeah. This is some <laughs> All Lives Matter shit. It's, it is. That's what that is. Yeah. Very much. It's some All Lives Matter bullshit. Like, let's not pigeonhole people into colors and let's just embrace the entire spectrum of skin pigmentation and come together as humans. Some bullshit. There was a, a person on CNN. Um, his name was uh, Dyson. I don't have his first name in front of me. I'm looking at the article right now. But he had a comment that was pretty funny and pretty accurate. It said, uh, Peterson unsuccessfully challenged my blackness and they damn sure proved their whiteness indifferent to history oblivious to truth and indifferent to reality yeah it, it blows my mind that jordan peterson is considered like one of the major american public intellectuals he's it's an intellectual it's embarrassing as hell super embarrassing that like you know we have people in our friend groups that like in our friend group that like um you know not not so well learned but wants to be and went out and bought a bunch of books and like shared them and one of them was a jordan peterson book and i was like you know who who the fuck that guy is and this person had no idea who jordan peterson was and i explained it and they were like man i feel bad for buying this book but like that's the majority of jordan peterson's like book sales and shit it's just people who have no idea what he's about yeah he casts a wide net and it goes over the the alienated, isolated, white male, angry at their, you know, their incel life demographic. And it just kind of wraps them all into this uh, aristocratic virtue fucking masturbatory machine where they just talk about how important <laughs> it is to uphold the standards of society and to be a, a, a strong warrior you know, for your culture and um, to protect your family and, and, and to work hard. It's just all these very individual, sharp um, points that are just um, upholding the status quo, which hurts a lot of people. And uh, I think that, that might qualify as episode uh, episode title, Masturbatory Machine. They <laughs> <laughs> sell those down for me over at... Uh, Oh, what's that fucking place? Mr. Sister. Love that place. Yeah. Didn't he say something about climate change, too? Yeah, he said that it was too um, complicated to be comprehended. You know, being a, being a person who studies um, psychologists, he's definitely the expert on that. And uh, he was... Yeah. He was uh, instantly shot down by the scientific community on that front, which I think that if his followers cared about the accuracy of everything Jordan Peterson says, he wouldn't have any followers, you know. But I think that he's also committing the error of like trying to uh, trying to understand a hard science through the lens of what they call a soft science, right? So he's approaching it from psychiatry and philosophy, which it sort of jives with what he's talking about, right? That uh, there are a whole bunch of variables and as a philosopher, you have to pick which variables you're gonna choose to study to sort of condense down to a single idea, but that's not the way that the hard sciences work, 
like chemistry, biology, climate science in general, there's only so many variables that can go into uh, a system, a dynamic analysis, which is based on mathematical equations that like philosophy doesn't have, you know what I mean? That are yeah. like, pretty objective. Um, but yeah, there's something going on in Rhode Island related to climate right now, I forget. Uh, I remember seeing the article, but I didn't really, uh, I only browsed it a little bit, but I think Evan uh, was doing more research into that. So what's going on? Well, to, to call it, you know, climate related is technically true, but um, I want to bring it up as more of an environmental racism mm. issue, actually. Um, I would like to bring your awareness to a thing called the Coastal Resources Management Council, the CRMC. Um, their stated mission is to preserve, protect, develop, and restore coastal resources for all Rhode Islanders. Uh, I don't know what that exactly means. They theoretically do that by implementing, quote, special area management plans, SAMPs, uh, which is another super ambiguous term and it's confusing. Uh, they supposedly uh, design these SAMPs cooperatively with local municipalities and government uh, entities and community organizations. So it's like there's a lot of words in there. It feels like a like college senior has is like trying to pump out his term paper and it's just like throwing as many words in there as possible, but none of it actually means anything. I'm still like a little not understanding exactly what these people do and that's probably by design um we've uh, we've covered like uh we've at least mentioned the coastal management systems thing because i remember it was uh, it was something that was being talked about last year and like i don't know objectively what it all means but i'm pretty sure it has to do with um beach regulations because Rhode Island is like, you know, pretty much all beach yeah, land. So there are a lot of regulations on coast coastline. Um, and, uh, but the one thing that was really like strange about these meetings was that they were closed to the public, like in any sort of like small government forum type thing, um, the public is allowed to make comments, but not in this case which is very fishy um you know who could make comment i bet people who own private property on coastal on coastal areas yeah well, like assholes in newport that got mansions on the coast and shit i bet you they could say something well exactly and if you read the article on uprise you do get in get into some of that so um based on what it says on the website i don't know what the resources are or how they are preserved or by whom uh, it shouldn't be easy to find out, but it is just sort of a hush-hush operation. Uh, in fact, until very recently, public opinion was not on the schedule, like I said. And if you ask yourself why, I think the uh, answer is pretty obvious. It's like, because racist people are doing racism and nobody's allowed to talk about it. Um, and it's not like the CRMC isn't aware uh, that they're preserving, protecting, developing, and restoring money back into Rhode Islanders in unsavory ways. Uh, they definitely, I think they definitely know, 
uh, a few years ago in 2007, they sneakily fast-tracked approval of facility in the Port of Providence. Um, that was just pumping, pumping up the fossil fuels. Like, they're mm -hmm. like, girl, it's not even dangerous. Like, like, don't worry about it in spite of an outcry from the people who would be negatively impacted, who are obviously, you know, going to be working class people of color. Uh, and and they did know about it because it was National Grid and Gina Raimondo who like orchestrated the whole thing. But now the council can hear from the public and the public um, who are, you know, being poisoned, sick to death by just trying to live in the Port of Providence or in and around the Port of Providence. But because of the expansion of fossil fuels, they just don't have anything clean. And members of the public are speaking in opposition to this facility, uh, to a facility being built. Neighbors and environmental justice groups said, hell no, uh, which is bringing up the pretty blatant white supremacy. Um, and actually, this is an interesting uh, detail because for people who don't know what it's like, uh, they, they cut off, they cut the microphone of a woman of color while she was talking about the racism that she faces every day. So holy shit. Yeah, not a good look for them. And they had her threatened. They threatened to have her removed by the police. Oh my god! She was getting course. a little too something. <laughs> you can have your public opinion, but just don't make it too. Don't just keep calm. You know what I mean? Yeah, just um, have some order. Try to keep the angry black lady stuff at the door. Yeah. <laughs> Save the angry black lady stuff for for somewhere else. Yeah. Um. So, uh, they're, but it's, it's almost like they're running unopposed because they're just using threats. This uh, shady group has continued to suck um, uh, to, to withhold documents, really, um, which is illegal. And so that the, the evidence isn't like actually around or like not out or available that they're just like polluting this, this port of Providence. And um, I mean, so it's the, it's the liquid nitrogen that's the issue. That's the biggest greenhouse gas. And we all know by now greenhouse gases is like the thing that is destroying the planet, right? Um, but also like shorter term, yeah, we need clean air and like, a lot of the kids, we've talked about this before, a lot of these kids have asthma. They're coming to school and they have asthma and it's getting worse. I have asthma, it's not related, but let me just say asthma is super scary and not fun and it's terrible. So uh, up, thank you Uprise for, for being the, the mouthpiece and uh, for covering this. Steve, I think it was your article that I looked to for a lot of the source material. Um, always speak up, guys, if you can. Uh, even if they cut your microphone, there are different ways to talk about it. Uh, they, the, the they, meaning the government, national grid, whoever, will continue poisoning. Um, but I don't think any, if you're like us, you're not going down without some kind of kicking and screaming. So the way that I understand this is Think about Rhode Island. I don't know like how many places in Rhode Island you've been, been in Newport, Narragansett, Providence, Pawtucket, you know, some of the coastal areas, Warwick. There's not a lot of industrial development on in the coastal areas. A lot of it is recreational or private property, right? 
The major industrial coastal areas that you can think of is the Port of Providence, right? Yeah. And that's it. And so what I think that this is, is rich people throughout Rhode Island, outside of Providence, that want to avoid any kind of industrial development in any of the other areas in Rhode Island and to restrict it to the Port of Providence, knowing that, as Evan said, Providence is where most of Rhode Island's people of color live and the poor working class people also live predominantly in Providence. And so that's why I think that this is like backdoory. I think because it's so transparent what they're doing, what they're trying to do, that they know that as soon as it's public, someone's going to blow the whistle on that, you know? It just blows my mind that it can be secret, though. That's the crazy part. That seems so illegal. People do illegal things sometimes. It's true. People do do illegal. Like that time I stole sunglasses in Louisiana. That was. Yeah, but that's a cool thing. Though. It's true. That's my Another thing in local news is that I heard a bunch of old ladies talking about how people in Louisiana never take care of their dogs. You found two dogs in Louisiana. Yeah. I am never, from Louisiana <laughs> and fostered a variety of dogs. I've never heard that stereotype <laughs> in my life. Andy, <laughs> as, a, as a born and raised New Englander, have you ever, you've heard a lot of stereotypes about the South, as have I, but have you ever heard somebody say people in the South don't take care of their dogs? No. It's no, such a weird stereotype. It. I think these, I don't, these old ladies must have watched like someone on... I don't know. It's because they fi- they foster a lot of dogs, and I guess they do foster, a, you know, some that have come from the South. Now, the South could be one of a lot of different places, but yeah, they just were, they were like making the connection. They're like, oh, a lot of these dogs are from the South. I wonder why. Oh, because <laughs> Southern people don't take care of their dogs like we do. I was like, all mean? right, <laughs> you say so. <laughs> I think that that's just someone seeing you know, an aspect of something else and then trying to come to their logical conclusion of it without thinking about it any further. And that's well, what I happens. I explain thing without, it ha- without having any actual information, but I would invite those ladies to both kiss my ass and look at my adorable dog and his like new sweater. Like, who is 14 years old. Who is 16 years 16 old years and old. like comfortably sleeping in my bed right now. They are very well taken care of. Very, very well. I've seen it. So it is just the room. Stereotypes all over the place. That's uh, yeah, I've never heard that stereotype, but that's what that's what stereotypes are basically is just people like maybe confronting something once or just drawing at abstract connections and then just saying, like, this must be universal because I've seen it twice, I've seen it three times, and so it must be pervasive, it's everywhere, you know. It's the same kind of madness that people have when they come up with these like um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. You know, they'll see like uh, five or six people successful, you know, multimillionaires, definitely the shit and capitalists. But then they'll be like, oh, my God, they're all Jewish. This has got to be a Jewish conspiracy. No, definitely a lot of scapegoating. Definitely a lot of scapegoating. Uh, I heard that um, um, Seth Magaziner dropped out of the governor's race. Yeah. Um, which 
is good because Seth Magaziner sucks, but also but also very transparent, uh, opportunistic move. You know, one seat becomes vacant and then you're like, oh, yeah, fuck that office. I want this one. You know what I mean? It's just like, how could anybody vote for some guy like that? That like my understanding is if you're if you're running for office, like let's take Jackie Goldman, for example, if you're running for office, there has to be something about that seat in office that means something to you right not just a position to to advance yourself not just uh not just to say that you're an office holder it's got to be like you have a vision i can transform the state through this office and that's why i'm investing so much in this so it's just really funny when seth magaziner is saying all the stuff about i, I want to be the governor i know what's best for rhode island I could be the best executive for Rhode Island. But then as soon as a federal position opens up, he's like, oh, never mind. Fuck Rhode Island. I want to I want to be in D.C. Because basically that's what uh, the federal congressmen are. Right. They're not they come to Rhode Island every once in a while, but they're mostly in Washington, D.C., uh, just supposedly representing the state. But he also has the fattest uh, wallet out of everybody that was running um, for mm. governor before. So he also has the money behind him, even though he's going to have to pull some favors to get that money reassigned to his new um, his new target here. You know, he's already going to be leaps and bounds ahead of, I believe, the old um, Democratic chair in Rhode Island, Pacheco, and uh, this other guy um, who's like a refugee adv advocate um, named um, Omar Ba. Have you all heard of him? No. So he's like a... Uh, He's a man who's been around the world, um, and uh, I don't want to get this wrong. I believe he's from the Gambia. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, I'll have to check later. I'm an idiot. Um, anyway, he came to America with, like he said, you know, nothing, nothing on his back, you know, besides, you know, his clothes. He didn't bring anything. He got here. And uh, built his life, got a got a degree from the Rhode Island uh, College, and I was really interested in him. I did some research, and then I found that he was actually just a very moderate uh, person politically. So we kind of have to like, even though he looks like someone that we would want to vote for, um, because he definitely seems like he might have the best interests of um, different communities in Rhode Island in mind he's definitely not someone who would agree with us specifically politically. Um, is, is he running for Lieutenant governor with Magaziner? What's his deal? What's his no, deal? he's running for the congressional seat with oh. Magaziner. Um, yeah. So Magaziner is running for the second congressional seat that Langevin just gave up right. that he said he wasn't going to run again for. And, um, yeah, he's running for that, and he's probably not going to get it because no one knows his name. He's not known anywhere except for the refugee, um, you know, the the refugee circles, people that are advocates um, in that community. Um, so Magaziner basically has the biggest name, the biggest wallet. He's probably going to run away with it. And then we're going to look at what the Republican competition is going to be, and that's what Jessica De La Cruz. Mm. People say Alan Fung. Alan Fung is going for governor, I thought, right? He's going to be their th the, the Republican ticket for governor. Which, like, he, he was, he's a former mayor of Cranston, I think. Uh, he is, yeah. But no, they're, uh, the idea is that, they're, that he might run for uh, Congress and the congressional seat. It's a second congressional seat that's up. 
We got to have more Cranston people on here. We got to start changing their mind. Like, I feel like Cranston, because it's between Ro- Warwick and Providence, it's like yeah. a swing. You know what I mean? It can swing out of the way. You can start going to Cranston and like just driving around with our communist flags, stuff like that. Uh, what is there? Is there anything else that's been going on? What yeah. House of Kodak just shared something on their um, Instagram page about the uh, the rescue bill. Um, it might end up cutting $7.7 million out of the budget for art um, and other like community um, projects. And uh, they're asking people to go to their Instagram and click on the link in their bio and either mail in what they have written or call in with their prompt um, to get that changed because uh, the house of Kodak is doing great things. We had them on last week. Yeah. Um, they do a lot for uh, the people that they help. Um, yes. And part of that is embracing the creative elements that exist within the people that go to their, uh, that use their services. So this might have an effect on the house of Kodak all the things that AS220 does, and even um, the Luna um, Luna Collective, or Luna Co-op that we have coming these on are, today. These are all hotbeds for leftist politics that uh, maybe the state suspects that are indoctrinating people with uh, erroneous ideas, misleading ideas. Um, well, we sure are trying. Yeah, we're trying. We're, we are trying. I'll put it on the record. We are trying to do that. Um, exact thing not erroneous ideas though our ideas are correct and good well well natured well i am going to uh call this episode a stop so that we can interview the luna community care who are our guests for today um so yeah keep tuning in listen to what luna is all about because they seem like great people hell yeah Thanks for listening. All right, thanks for listening. See ya. Thanks for coming back. This is PLR, and we are so lucky, and you are so lucky, because we have Sai and Casey from Luna in here with us today, and there's a lot that I don't know that uh, I'm really hoping we're going to get to hear from them. So uh, if you want to introduce yourselves, you can tell me your name or your pronouns if you want. Uh, and tell me, tell me your favorite drink. Okay, I can start. Um, my name is Casey. I use she, they pronouns. Um, and I would say that my favorite drink is seltzer by far. Specifically, I love the Spindrift uh, lemon seltzer. That's delicious. It's very expensive, but you can get deals on Amazon, which is, you know, the devil. But, um, you know, to save like 50% off on a very expensive seltzer, it's helpful. Um, thank you all for having us tonight. I really appreciate this. Hey, um, I'll chime in. I'm Cy Bedrick. Uh, I use they, them pronouns. Um, and I am a transplant from New York to Rhode Island, but I have to say my favorite drink is coffee milk, um, specifically a non-dairy version because I'm lactose intolerant, but um, I didn't know about it until I moved here and it's pretty awesome.
Is the autocrat syrup vegan? So I used to drink it a lot when I was a kid, but I haven't drank any of it since. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's vegan. I don't really mind either way. It just tastes good. If it doesn't have <laughs> lactose in it, then I imagine it probably is. Some sugars are processed through animal bones, so it depends uh, yeah. on what sugars are used. That's true. All right. Um, the more you know. Yeah. Well, y'all, can you tell us, like, in a nutshell, kind of a moderate to large size to nut, nut uh, like a walnut, maybe, uh, what is Luna? What do you do? Who's it for? What happens? Cool. So uh, Luna Community Cooperative is a disabled workers cooperative. Um, and we really um, are an organization that is led by and for neurodivergent adults. Um, we have programs um, that are based in peer services and peer support. Um, so we have a drop-in center in Pawtucket in Hope Artiste Village. We do one-to-one -one, um, peer counseling. Um, we run peer groups, special interest clubs, which is some of our favorite things to do, um, workshops and community events. Um, and we are not fully open right now. Um, we've had some delays with like COVID, but it's actually been really nice um, to grow this over the last two years from an idea into an actual organization. Um, but we're not just a peer support service that's like located in Rhode Island. We have folks from all across the country that are participating in Luna services and like ideally want there to be pods of people who are doing this work um, throughout the country and maybe across the world. Heck yeah. Um, and one of the programs that we are running coming up, um, is something that I am personally hosting. Uh, I'm really excited about it. It's called genderful and it's a gender affirming makeup workshop that is geared towards neurodivergent adults and anyone who is interested. Um, and it's, uh, it's very important to me because um, I think a lot of people don't feel that um, different makeup styles or products are accessible to them. They don't really have any experience with that. Um, maybe they haven't ventured into that world yet. And I believe that um, being able to adjust and control your appearance um, in a way that affirms your identity, whether it's your gender, whether it's another part of your identity um, is, is extremely empowering and important. And there's actually a huge overlap between um, neurodivergent people and queer people. Uh, and so that's a really interesting intersection that I'm really excited to um, be serving. Do you ever work with um, House of Kodak? Not yet, because I, I only moved to Rhode Island um, uh, two years ago, and it's I've been a little bit shut in with the pandemic, but I, I know about their services, and I'm really excited to get more involved with them. I think every shelter, like teen shelter, should have a salon in it. Oh my God, Absolutely. that would be beautiful. Um, <laughs> we actually have been at two House of Kodak events and are like really, really interested in um, talking to them about like different youth programs that people can get involved in. And actually, I didn't know this about them um, until I listened to your podcast last week. Um, but it was really cool to hear how they are like 
allowing the teen or not the teens because they're 18 to 26 year olds, um, but the youth to like play with different art stuff so that they can maybe become makers and, you know, have their businesses at those marketplaces. Cause that's actually something that we're going to be doing at Luna too. Um, we really want to not only be like a workers cooperative and doing the peer support services, but also have folks who are neurodivergent, you know, queer, disabled, mad, be able to learn about like how to run your own micro business and have micro businesses that are also like rooted in cooperative values. Because when you think about it, so many disabled individuals, myself included, um, you know, have a really hard time working a nine to five job. Or in my case, as a therapist, I was like working way more than 40 hours a week. Um, and the systems that we work in are not set up to support disabled individuals and they don't really serve disabled individuals very well, um, which is like so counterintuitive, right? But like, we don't even talk about things like neurodivergence, um, or like neuroaffirming services when we're in graduate school and it like starts there. Right. And so, um, it feels really alienating as somebody who's like autistic and ADHD, or as I like to call it, ADHD, um, you know, to be in that system and constantly feel like you have to mask in that system. Um, I am chronically ill too. And like, you know, just getting out of bed for me is really hard. And that's why I mostly work from bed, which is amazing. Um, and, you know, like we're not allowed to take time off for ourselves. We feel like so kind of um, like, like we need to be there for our, you know, clients. And so we can't take care of ourselves, which is also so rooted in like white supremacy behavior and culture too. Um, so like, we're trying to create this culture. That's like a workspace for people to show up how they are to do work, you know, to um, make them feel good. And like, when they want to participate, people can like turn off their videos. When we have virtual meetings, you can work from your bed. You might not be able to, you know, talk that day. And so, you know, you might be able to like use the chat function as a way to communicate with us, or we have like non-speaking folks too. So like, you know, we have different ways that we can communicate with people and like, that's how all workplaces should be, but it's not the reality of like workplaces, especially in America. Can I uh, ask a real basic question before we go any further, but for people who may not know, um, what is neurodivergence and what are the parameters maybe of neurodivergence? I mean, what, what does it entail? What does it not entail for people listening who may not know or, or are just broadly interested in it? This is a fantastic question. And it's a question that I always get. Um, because even if we have some concept of what we think is like neurodivergence, it's usually, um, you know, kind of rooted in, you know, people who um, are autistic, have ADHD, like learning disabilities. Um, so the actual term like neurodiversity speaks to like the diversity of like the human brain. Um, and so neurotypical people um, people who are not neurodivergent fit into like neurodiversity. And a lot of times those two words are conflated and people will use neurodiversity um, instead of neurodivergent or neurodivergence. People who are neurodivergent um, are people who have like 
thoughts or a brain that works differently than the norm. And, you know, we know we live in a world that is very much based on like neurotypical standards and thoughts. Um, and so anything that diverges from that is like not okay and needs to be fixed. So neurodivergence includes autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, cognitive impairments, um, intellectual disabilities, um, TBI, PTSD, CPTSD, schizophrenia, um, chronic depression and anxiety, OCD, um, personality disorders. There's so much overlap actually in like people being diagnosed um, with borderline personality disorder. Um, or narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and being autistic. Um, and, and I think that we have this like vision of what autism looks like in particular. And like, um, I was talking to people today about like that perception, because I run a couple groups for like autistic adults, including autistic providers. And I said, you know, it's like, you know, you kind of have to like look autistic in order to be accepted as autistic in our culture. Somebody said, it's actually not like the looking, it's like the, the pity that people give you. So, you know, people have a little bit more permission to like do the things, although like a lot of autistic people need to have their needs met. Um, so it was kind of interesting to have that conversation, you know, and we're constantly having these conversations um, as somebody who is self-diagnosed autistic and leads other people through that process of, you know, um, self-diagnosing as autistic. Um, I think it's just so important that like a lot of this is like the way that we feel internally and the way that we interpret the world, like sensory processing things. And um, misunderstanding things and feeling like we're wrong. And like, that can't be diagnosed by a diagnostician who's like looking at very, um, kind of ableist assessments that are based on like what they see as like white boys, um, who have the income to get assessed and what their behaviors were like typically, right. Or like people who we think, you know, um, appeared as like, uh, Asperger's, which is no longer a term that we use in our community. Yeah. Um, I'd love to speak to that as well. Um, there's, I'm, I'm not yet a, a practitioner of any kind in terms of mental health, but I'm working towards it. Um, and, and it's my understanding that, um, there's a uh, much less, um, common, it's much less common for people of color to get diagnoses, um, and especially, and, uh, probably low income people as well, because they don't have as much access to services to get diagnosed. Um, and so, uh, self-diagnosis, um, is, is something that is becoming more recognized as, as super valid, um, and important, um, particularly for people who, um, may be subject to systematic oppression and, and lack of resources, um, and may not have access to, um, be diagnosed by a practitioner. Um, and so, so, uh, promoting, um, like the, the tools for self-diagnosis is, is very much a liberating practice. In addition to that, you know, kind of looping it back to Luna and what we do 
is like, we believe that like people who share identities need to have their own space to talk about issues that like relate to them. And so as a white autistic woman, my experience is not that of somebody who's black and autistic. Um, and therefore like we need, we have, we want black autistic folks to be running those groups at Luna because it's so important to like share that information, but, you know, have it be based in like an identity group. Um, and, and that's just something that like is so important to me. And I didn't see at all in the mental health field and even in peer support programs that like we, we broadly use the term like lived experience. Like, you know, if I've experienced madness, you know, then I can run a group for people who are mad, but the experience of somebody who is like black and mad is very different than somebody who is white and mad. Like we have a lot of privilege still in our systems. Um, and, and now we're talking a lot about like liberation, but like, you know, if I'm able to liberate myself, a black person might not be able to liberate themselves because that might put them in a position of actually like being at risk of like the police, you know, um, targeting them or like being hospitalized and like, you know, having, um, psychiatric trauma. And so like, we have to think about that. We have to think in a very intersectional way when we're thinking about this stuff, because like, I'm very proud to be autistic and like proudly talk about it, but like, there might be somebody that like is black and autistic or other people who are multiply marginalized, that like, that's a real safety risk for them to share that information with anybody um, because they're more at risk of like being targeted in society. And so like they need to have a safe place where they can come, but where somebody has that lived experience and that shared lived experience. Yeah, that's really well put. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I want to find out, so you saw a need based on your lived experience and um, how, how does it work with clients or with people seeking resources? Is there a, what kind of pay model is there? Like how, especially for people who, you know, have hard times finding, uh, and sustaining work and saving and all like that, how are they able to afford your resources? So we have come up with a membership model that we feel like is pretty reasonable, um, which is for 40 to hundred dollars a month based on the green bottle economic justice sliding scale. Um, folks can access um, two groups or clubs a week, um, community events, um, one-to-one peer support um, and take some time if, if they are in our community in Rhode Island to be in the um, actual like physical space. Um, and we also offer options for people that don't want a membership. And so like all of our groups and clubs um, and activities are gonna be on a sliding scale of five to $30. Um, and so people can pay what they can afford based on that model. Um, but we also are in the process of like writing grants and seeking a lot of community like donations because I pretty much have been self-funding this along with um, the other co-founder myself. And like, we, I'm at a point where I'm like, I don't really have the financial means to, to fund this, but I believe in it so much. 
Um, and so like, we really want to, um, like share this information with the community because there are people in the community. Um, there are businesses that can support the efforts that we're doing. Um, and also like a big piece of what we're doing is also like embedding community care and mutual aid into this. And I know that y'all are like all about mutual aid, but like, we want people to know that if they're a part of our community, like they can attend our programs for free, no matter what, um, we would, you know, like services to, you know, be paid if people have the means to do that, but we're not going to turn people away. And, um, we also want to pay people for their work. Right. And so people can run a group. People can have a special interest club. We want to do things like, um, have people be on Twitch and like be a peer support, um, on Twitch or places where like people might feel more comfortable to show up rather than like a group or a social event. Mm -hmm. Um, we want to have like Slack channels. Um, so people can just like text in their questions. Um, so like, we want to have things very accessible to a lot of different people with a lot of different social and communication needs. Um, and you know, we definitely need funding for that, but like a way that people are actually going to be able to like access our programs too, is like, they don't just have to be a member. They could actually, you know, run something and that can count towards their monthly membership. So if they want to run like a weekly group and they can't afford something, you know, they could potentially like, you know, run a game night once a week or something like that. And that will pay for their membership, which is, you know, an idea that I've always had. And like, we want to create the solidarity economy so that like, you don't have to be, have money to participate. And we know that like, as disabled people, we can't often like even participate like or run things. And so like, how do we also build in this buffer of like, if you can't do this, um, if you like, can't contribute back to us. Like we have people who can, you know, support you. We have, you know, ways that we can support you beyond like the membership, um, by having like mutual aid and community care. So like, if somebody's a worker for us and then they're like, I'm having a bad flare up, I can't do the work for like the next few weeks. How can we help you? Can we like send people to your house to like help clean a little bit or cook you meals, drop off meals? Can we, um, you know, bring you to medical appointments if you don't have the energy to do that. Like, do you need some support with your rent this month? And like, we really want to build that model in because so many times if a worker is not productive, they're not valued and they're like taken out of that community. And we want that to be built in. Like, like you always have a place at Luna and we're always here to like support you because you are valuable no matter like how productive you are. And I can speak to that personally. Um, <laughs> like for instance, this week I um, have been a little under the weather. My chronic illness has flared up and um, you know, I didn't respond to an email right away. And I out of habit apologized to Casey. I was like, you know, I I've been having some health issues and I've been less productive this week. And of course, because the way that Casey operates is very much um, anti-ableist, um, their response was, you work at the pace that's good for you, you know, you don't need to apologize for that. And that's just like so refreshing and unusual, um, as an attitude to find from, um, any, any work. Um, and, uh, on that note, I'd also love to mention that, um, 
something that we want to implement as a collective is a forum for feedback from our members um, because we want to keep in mind that um, our experience and our knowledge as facilitators of this co-op um, is not universal. And so there's always going to be um, more to learn and, and more ways for us to accommodate our members. So um, utilizing a, a way for members to give us feedback and let us know like what, what further ways we can accommodate them um, will definitely help um, push the limits of our imagination for, for accessibility. Have you partnered with any schools to try to help them understand concept of neurodivergence? So right now we're not really focused so much on, you know, youth, even though it's such an important thing, but it is a uphill battle, um, dealing with parents and, and, you know, schools and other systems that serve children because, ABA or applied behavioral analysis is like the end all be all treatment for like insurance reimbursement for people who are autistic and under the age of 18. Um, and while I have very strong feelings on like the harm that that actually causes because it like forces kids to stop doing the things that they do that like help them communicate or, you know, help them learn and grow in the world through their own like needs, um, and makes them more neurotypical. Right. Um, I don't want to say that, like, I think that all ABA is bad and I'm probably going to get some like real pushback from this and people are going to hate me. Cause like, that is the thing that to say right now is like all ABA is like terrible, but like, you also have to think about more marginalized populations that are trying to protect their children. And so if you really like dig into that, you know, ABA can be helpful maybe for a black child, um, you know, because we know that we live in this world that's very dangerous for disabled people, but especially like black disabled people, like that's a huge percentage of who we see in the prison systems. Um, and, you know, there are some like cases out there that are like talked about right now. Um, and, you know, there are people in prison, you know, that are autistic or neurodivergent. And like, you know, so I don't believe that it's like an end all be all, even though I definitely agree that there's a lot of harm done in that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that like fighting autism moms and like, cause there really is like a quote unquote, like term I'm an autism mom, or like you see on message boards, like I'm an autistic family. No, if you have a child who is autistic, you are their mother. If you are in a family where there is a child who is autistic, you're not an autistic family. Only a person, only an individual can be autistic. You know, you have a child who is autistic and like the, the things that I hear from parents, you know, sometimes and like, I can't tolerate this is like, oh, I don't like to call them autistic. You know, they're a person with autism. Well, like, no, because it's not something that like is a disease. It's how our brains work. Like it's our neurotype. And so like, it always just seems to me like really icky. And I worked with children and families for like five years um, doing enhanced outpatient services, but it feels super icky to me to be like, 
fighting that. And I, and as somebody who believes in collective liberation, there are not services out there for adults, um, especially like adults who weren't diagnosed under the age of 18. And so like, I want to focus on that population right now. Um, because there are so many adults that like, feel like they don't fit in with the world. Like I know that the word that I always used before I understood that I was autistic, even as somebody with a diagnosis of ADHD was like, I feel like a fucking alien. Like, I feel like I don't fit in. I feel like I can never do things the way that people want me to do. I feel good when people like praise me, but I feel like part of what I'm being praised for are some of the things that are like the hardest for me that I've had to like adapt to. Um, and it just always felt like really weird and like disconnected, like living that way. And, and so I, yeah. And, and as I said, like a hundred percent relatable for, you know, trans folks and, and like, I, I just, I just really believe that like autistic adults need this liberation and we need to do it collectively. Um, the, there's a, uh, something I learned in some disability studies that I, I was lucky enough to take, um, which is the, uh, idea of social constructionism, um, which is, is super important to, uh, disability justice, but it's also, um, extremely important in, um, the trans and gender diverse community. Um, and, and it's something that I think a lot of trans and neurodiverse people um, sort of understand intrinsically whether they know about the concept like consciously, um, which is basically like the the normative quote unquote community um, like the uh, of society uh, sort of sets what is con considered normative. Um, so like the people who have power in society decide what's normal. Um, and that set of norms um, can sort of leave people out um, and decide what's abnormal. And that social constructionism um, is, is a big part of uh, gender norms and um, the gender binary, uh, and as well as like behavioral norms that lead to people feeling the need to mask. Um, and so, for, for queer people, um, as well as uh, neurodiverse people, uh, there's a lot of that experience of feeling like an alien and feeling like a weirdo. Um, and I, I know I've always described myself as an alien before I knew I was queer, before I knew I was neurodivergent. Um, and, and I think coming together and, and finding other people who have that experience and realizing like, you know, I might feel different from normative community members, but I maybe feel less different and more connected and like I can recognize similar traits um, in people who have overlapping identities with me. And that, that can really help alleviate some loneliness and some misunderstanding of yourself. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that it's so important to bring together communities like this. And I think to Sai's point, a lot of people even feel when they are like in a trans group that there is often like a binary within that you have to present one way or another, or you're not like legitimately trans. Thousand percent. 
Yeah. And so like what we're trying to do is say like, show up how you are. Like we get you, we may not have the same lived experience, but we certainly can all feel that way, um, of there being a binary. And I think the beautiful thing about like autistic people, and it's actually like related to like a very big myth about people who are autistic, like we're super rigid. We see things in black and white. And actually I think that like one of our frustrations is that there is this binary and sometimes like the goalposts shift or like the thoughts shift. And so like, that feels like a mind fuck to us. Um, and so we can be like really rigid about like, well, this was the expectation before. And now this is the expectation or like, this was okay before. And now this is okay before, but like, I've been feeling this way the whole time. And now you're taking my ideas and like, you know, saying that this is okay now when you told me it wasn't okay before. So I think that it's like super important to like, just allow for there to be space for people to show up how they are, express who they are, be who they are and not have that judgment. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, you both have answered so many of the questions that I had already, which is great. I mean, that, that means that you're like prepared to talk you're articulate and clear about what your mission is. And, and that's a good thing. Um, I wanted to ask how you sort of in closing this segment of the, of the interview, because we're going to ask you some fun questions afterwards, but in general, um, two things, first of all, how could somebody either get involved with Luna community care or help if they wanted to, you mentioned, that you're, you're looking for funding to, um, people can donate. So what are some ways that people can help? And then um, if you were to meet somebody that is in the position that you were, let's say five years ago before knowing that such a co-op like this was even possible, I mean, what would you say to them uh, to try to convince them or urge them to, to participate in this kind of community care? So I think that to answer the first question, it's a little bit clearer um, to kind of run through how to get involved. Um, So we right now are always like accepting new members of the workers co-op, but in order to like do stuff for Luna, you don't have to be a workers co-op member. The real difference is that like you have a vote and you're building this organization right now. Um, and so, you know, people can get involved as a worker co-op member and like myself and other people are really happy to like meet with people individually. Like I always like hold aside like an hour to share information about Luna ways to get involved, um, have them share some of their interest and information with me. And the cool thing is that there's like no expectation for like work. Like if you can only contribute like a couple hours, cool. If you just want to be like connected to like what we're doing and are thinking about being a worker, you can still show up to our meetings and just like listen Um, or like still be on the email chains. And when you feel ready to, you know, participate in something, you can do that. Like there's no pressure. Um, So we're actively building our worker co-op membership right now. Um, and then you can also be a volunteer and like everything's going to get paid for all the services that we do. Um, and you know, that's 
part of why we need funding before we like open technically in March and roll out a bunch of programs. But we want everybody to be paid 20 hours, 20 hours, $20 an hour um, to be doing the work. Like, so if somebody wants to run a group, if somebody wants to, you know, do a special interest club, in order to offer one-to-one peer support or run a peer group, everybody's going to have to go through what's called the peer mental health um, advocate position uh, training. And that's going to be run in conjunction with Project Let's, which is another like amazing radical organization. Um, and so we will train people for free to do that. Um, and I've written a grant and I'm crossing my fingers that I get the grant to provide for that training, but either way we will, um, be training everybody. So we have openings for about 25 people to be a part of that initial training. Um, and we'll probably have those routinely, you know, throughout the year so that more people can join, but like other ways that people can participate is like helping us with fundraising. Um, we need specifically somebody who can like do finance stuff because like, while I've taken a class on like finance stuff, like I have no idea like how to really do this shit. And I feel like I'm always like pulling it out of thin air and just like putting it on paper. So like, I definitely want somebody who has some skill on that because like, we want to obviously set up a payroll system, but we also want to make sure that we can do the community care piece, um, and mutual aid piece while also paying people and like keeping the business running. Like none of us expect to be like millionaires off of this. That isn't like the anti what we are. Um, but we still need to pay people. Like we're not going to exploit people and we're especially not going to like exploit disabled people. Um, so that's very important to us. People can also get involved in like, um, be participants or members of Luna and like engage in our programs. And the really cool thing about our system is like, you can be both a cooperative worker or like run a peer group and also participate in all of the things as like a participant. Like we don't want that hierarchy of like, if you're a peer worker, like you can't, you know, come to like our activities as a peer, you have to come as like a worker. Like that's not cool. Um, I don't believe in these like words like recovery, um, and, and things like that. So, um, I think that that's really important. Um, and then in terms of fundraising support, which is something that we obviously need, um, we have a couple upcoming fundraisers. So on February 22nd, we are going to be doing the flatbread community bake night. Um, I don't know if you all are familiar with that, but they give a percentage of each pizza that they sell to um, the organization. And so they do that, I think, every Tuesday night, which is really, really cool. And we were chosen to be part of that. Um, come to our programs. Like, like if you want to you know, participate and you want to give us money, like pay for the work that we're doing. Um, you know, that's kind of simple, but like, it's hard sometimes to like get people to show up, but we want people to show up because that's the way that we're going to be able to like continue to deliver this. So we have the genderful workshop, um, which is on the 9th of February at seven o'clock. Um, and all of these, uh, kind of events are posted on our Instagram. That's like the best means of, um, uh, I guess spreading the word to people. We also have a self-love dance party, um, that is going to be, um, with a DJ. 
and that's on um, Valentine's Day. So Monday the 14th um, from seven to probably 8.39 ish, we're just going to like kind of celebrate ourselves um, instead of like the fixation that we have on like being with your partner on Valentine's Day. Um, or you can come with your partner, you can come with your family, um, if you want to. And, and that's going to be another like really awesome event. Um, so yeah, so those are some ways. And then we have a GoFundMe. Um, and that is also, um, in our link tree that is posted in our Instagram. So like donate, donate, donate to our link tree. I believe in like, people really sharing information, even if they can't fund it themselves. So like, if you don't have the means to like contribute to our GoFundMe, send it to your friends and family, post it on Facebook, say like, I love this. I'm really invested in this. This is a cool project. And maybe somebody out there will also think it's cool and we'll be able to donate. Like the more word we get out around this stuff, the better. Um, we're also really open to like doing other community events and community like nights with other organizations that are like aligned with what the work that we're doing. Um, so, you know, if somebody else like wants to have a cocktail night to raise funds for Luna or, you know, wants to have us come and talk about neurodivergence um, with a group of people, we're very happy to come and do that. And like, we could raise money that way. Um, and then also like, Grants research is really hard. Um, and so pe if people know about a grant that like Luna would be appropriate to apply for, we have two fantastic, fantastic fiscal sponsors. So even though we are a cooperative, um, we're able to apply for grants. So if you're like, hey, this sounds really cool. And I know of a grant that would be perfect for y'all, like send it my way. Um, we will definitely apply for a grant. So those are some of the ways that people can help right now. I'm going to let Sai take it from here and answer the second part of that question. Awesome. Um, yeah. So I, I, I was really excited about that, that second part of that question. Um, how would, how would you have someone help someone um, get inspired to get involved? Like before, before knowing about what we're, what we're building here and particularly because I think about five years ago, wildly enough, um, I personally was really struggling with my own well-being and mental health. And, and one of the things that um, really got me through it was dreaming about a space like Luna. Um, I really was uh, thinking about how so much of my well-being is um, sort of integrative um, in order to maintain well-being um you you can't just have mental health support you also need like financial comfort you need um physical uh well-being you need to like have access to exercise or or stretching or or something that's that's helpful for your body you need to have access to um food that that nourishes you you need to have access to a community that affirms you and makes you feel um, supported and, and not alone. And so, um, building a space like this, that's really, um, bringing together different modalities of care and, um, and different, um, just, just community, um, spaces and activities, uh, is just inspired. So I think that 
I think I would say to someone, you know, imagine if all of the, or many of the things that you need to be well were offered in one, one program by people who have experience that's similar to yours and truly want the best for you and understand what you're going through. And even if they don't fully understand what you're going through, will work hard to learn and understand what, what it is you're experiencing. Um, and imagine that that space isn't just, you know, support groups or clinicians, but beyond that, in addition to that, it's, it's celebratory um, and, and really uh, offers you an opportunity to experience joy uh, around who you are and who the people in your community are um, and bring people together. And I think that that's just so unique um, and special. So that's, that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> I think that's a great note to end that portion of the interview on. So now if, if you both don't mind, I'd like to ask you some silly or personal questions. The first one, it began, we started as waffles or pancakes, but then people started answering their own breakfast food. And so now just what's your favorite breakfast food? I can say that my favorite breakfast food, although I don't get it a lot, is um, shashushka. I, I don't know if I'm saying it right. No, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, but I love, I don't know if you, anybody else has ever had it, but it's, um, like usually poached eggs with a very, um, I think it's Lebanese maybe, but like a tomato sauce that, you know, has some like middle Eastern flavors in it. And like, you can dip bread in it and it's like, so delicious. It sounds really weird. Cause it's like, you're eating pasta sauce with eggs, but it's amazing. And where, where do you find this breakfast or do you make it yourself? <laughs> so, um, my brother makes a really good version of it. Um, but he lives in LA. So I only get it when I see mm -hmm. him. Um, I used to live in Somerville and that was, I think the first time that I had ever had it. Um, there was a place that we went to that had it. Um, but I do know that Julian's makes it and like, I'm not a huge fan of Julian's to be honest. I'm sorry, Julian's. Um, but I've always felt like not myself there. Um, like you have to be a little bit like hip and cool. And like, sometimes I get really nervous in those places. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they make a really good one. So I've actually throughout the pandemic, like occasionally ordered from them and had it delivered. I love shakshuka. I think that's how you pronounce it. My, my uncle makes a really good version of it too. Um, I want to be contrarian and say that my favorite breakfast food is leftover dinner um, <laughs> of any kind, but particularly like leftover Chinese food. Um, can really hit the spot first thing in the morning. Damn, I totally feel that. I am, I am the leftover breakfast fiend. Leftover pizza is delicious. But again, let's get into social constructism and breakfast and dinner are not real. Absolutely. Eat your dessert first. Yeah. It's true. Then you add lunch into the mix and you've, you've upset the binary altogether. It's gone. 
So now you got three. You got a trinity. You got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Of uh, that's of what, like that's what we like. We like disrupting the binary. So like eating a uh, breakfast for dinner is also a clutch. Like I think that pancakes for dinner amazing. Absolutely. And if we take any notes from Tolkien and the Hobbits, we can't forget about 11 Z's and a second breakfast and afternoon tea. And I'm sure there's more that I'm forgetting. My son must be a Hobbit because <laughs> he is like a huge fan of second breakfast and, you know, eating late at night and Hey, you know, whatever suits him. Hobbits are the best kind of people. I'm a big snack. My dog was actually named Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, when I was growing up. Did you know that Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek fame wrote a song about Bilbo Baggins? It's excellent. There's a music video. Highly recommend. You'll have to send that to me later because I definitely want to watch that. You got it. Andy, you got a question? Yeah, I actually wanted to say two things and I had a silly question. Um, one of them is just to say you're doing great stuff. Uh, I love what you're doing. And um, I know someone that went to um, get a diagnosis from um, a, pro a professional with quotations um, on a personality disorder and they weren't able to go because it would have cost them over a thousand dollars because of um, meeting a deductible. So they had to cancel and it really, really hurt them. And it just really sucks. So you're giving a service and you're giving empowerment to people. And I think it's really important and really great and not talked about enough. And uh, so that's, I just wanted to say awesome. And then you also have this post on your, uh, on your Instagram page with the Simpsons relating like the Simpsons to um, all, the entire spectrum of uh, neurodivergency. And I thought that was like a really cool analogy because that really spoke to me because I love the Simpsons and it shows that it's not a binary construct as you talked about. Um, and it kind of like put things into perspective a little bit easier, you know, when I saw that and I liked it a lot. I thought it was a really cool post. Um, but what I, want, what I wanted to ask you was what's your favorite pasta shape? That's a really important question. I want to shout out that Casey has been running the Instagram by themselves and like really killing it. Yeah, um, you're killing it, Casey. It's hard work. Thank it's you. hard work. It's like a special interest of mine. So I don't think that it's hard work, but I, as I do have like my own practice and I only see a few folks um, that are all neurodivergent. Um, and I also do like assessments for folks who are neurodivergent um, that are anti-ableist. And, you know, I've like come up with this process. I did want to start to like separate who I am as Casey, like the clinician who is a lived experience clinician um, with the work that we're doing at Luna, especially as we bring on more co-op members, we definitely want more voices um, and people to share their stories. Um, you know, just like you shared yours a little bit, um, Andy, and like your friend's story, you know, I think that it's like so important for us to talk about that. Um, in terms of pasta shape, this is really interesting for me because I match my pastas with what I'm cooking. So if I'm going to have like just pasta and sauce, I like fusilli. Um, if I'm going to make like a pasta salad, I'm going to use bow ties. If I'm making one of my favorite pasta dishes, which is like 
sausage and broccoli or like sausage and kale with like a chicken broth. Um, I like to use bocatini. <laughs> so yeah, I switch it up all the time, but then it like has to be matching with the meal that I'm making. That's cool. That's a very good system. <laughs> it's a much more complicated and in depth than I expected. Very what about you, si? but it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just had to look up the name of it um, because it's it's sort of new to me. Um, but uh, so first of all, I, I want to share a hot take. I'm very anti. Um, there's like this type of spaghetti and maybe it's just cheap spaghetti that I get at the discount grocery store, but there's this type of spaghetti that has like, it's still spaghetti. It's still thin, long pieces, but it has like a hole through it, sort of like, like a really tiny tube. And for some reason, it just like, it squicks me out. Um, so I'm very anti whatever that is. Um, but other than that, I'm like pretty into a lot of different pasta shapes. And for the first time recently, um, I went on my honeymoon, um, uh, during a dip in COVID cases, um, to Germany and had, uh, Spitzel. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, it's considered like German pasta dumplings. And basically what it is, is it's like little, like sort of like worm shaped pasta. Um, it's, it's just like they, they make the dough and they just like sort of randomly roll it out into little plops. Um, and they're, I don't know. There's something about them. It's almost like gnocchi sort of in terms of like the amount of pasta that you get in each bite in comparison to sauce. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It's really good. And also like any pasta that is homemade is like worlds above the dried stuff. For some reason, it's just extra special. What's your favorite restaurant in town? Good question. It's a tough one because of COVID. I like haven't gone out in a really long time. I would say that like my two favorites like pre-COVID were um, uh, Nick's on Broadway. Something just broke in my kitchen. Okay, anyway, <laughs> sorry for the pause there. I just heard something crashing. Um, I have an eight-year-old and I don't know what he broke, but that's okay. Hopefully my boyfriend will help him clean it up. <laughs> um, so the other place is, um, I always kind of liked the vibe and the food at um, Troop. Classic. Yeah, I love that Troop um, is is often involved in uh, theater uh, theater showings with the Wilbury Theater Group. Um, they usually have like a little stand there for snacks and um, drinks and stuff, and that's really nice nice to have access to. Um, I gotta say, like probably my favorite. I have two favorites right now. Um, I live right up the street from uh, Cafe Mexico. Um, I think that's what it's called. Uh, maybe it's Casa Mexico. Um, it's right on at, on, um, Atwell's right by the corner of Academy. Um, and they make like incredible tacos and there's usually pastries there. Um, and just like a great little bodega slash taco shop all around. Um, and I believe it's, um, like Mexican family owned, um, local neighborhood folks. So we love the local owned 
places. Um, and I also really got into recently um, Garden of Eve, which is also in my neighborhood. Um, I, it turns out I'm kind of obsessed with oxtails. Um, so <laughs> that's uh, a, a recent obsession and their food is just like so incredibly good. That's a Haitian restaurant, right? It's Caribbean. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I've looked it up before. Yeah, it's it's worth it. Their food is amazing. Good to know. Um, Do y'all like animals? Oh, yeah. I have a cat named Benny, um, but I also fostered kittens and cats for like five plus years uh, before <laughs> I got my forever guy. Um, hopefully going back to fostering again um, soon once we can get our office sort of cat proofed um but like I've always I've always loved working with animals I I've like volunteered at a bunch of humane societies I used to work at a veterinary hospital when I was in high school um so all animals all the time do you prefer cats I yeah I am a cat person I really do love like all animals but given the choice I will spend my time with cats hmm. What about you? Can you see me? Yeah, you have a dog on your lap, right? Are we are we still yeah. friends? Yeah, I have a dog on my lap. I'm not um, uh, exclusively into dogs, you know? Fair. I love dogs. I love cats. I love it all. As long as they're friendly, that's all that, you know? Sure. Even if they're not friendly, I'll just look at them from afar. I just want you to see this. He's precious or they're precious, that dog. Look at that. I feel like there's Farrah Fawcett vibes happening with this dog, with the ears and the flippy hair. Major, I'm always feeling uh, Matthew McConaughey because he's so oh, like, yeah. golden and like, he knows he's hot. <laughs> Absolutely a star. Yeah. I'm a cat person um, and I'm like like a cat, I think. Like I like to not be with people for the most part, but then I really like to be like petted. Um, <laughs> but I'm allergic to cats. No. And so like, I can't actually have a cat, but I break it sometimes. Like if I'm at somebody's house, cause cats are like super attracted to me. Cause like, I love petting animals. I think that that's like such a stim and yeah. like, so they can tell. And so like, it's always really sad because then I'm like, I can't have a cat like to live with me because then the fur is going to be everywhere and I, the oils will come off and I'll be allergic. But like, I'm really good about washing my hands and doesn't seem to like affect me other than like, if I put my hands near my face um, so I can be around cats. I just can't have a cat. Have you ever I, been around um, like a hypoallergenic cat? Like some of the, some of the types of cats can be hypoallergenic, even the ones that have fur and aren't hairless. I think that they're awesome. I have a strong feeling about like taking animals from like a shelter or from somebody who maybe like can't care for their animals. hundred percent. And so like spending like golden doodles are my favorite dogs in the world. But like, I also feel like I don't feel comfortable spending a ton of money on like a, you know, dog that like, is bread. I, I just don't really agree totally. with that. And so, um, like my, my brother's dog is one of my favorite dogs and, um, spike 
I'm sorry, Squid, his old dog was Spike. Squid, um, his real name is Squidward, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> Squidward is like the sweetest pit bull in the world. So like, it's more about the vibe that I get from the animal, I think, than like having a particular preference. Just a sidebar, um, one of the, a really good option for people who are interested in taking an animal into their home, um, but not sure if that animal is going to be a good fit for them is a lot of places have foster to adopt programs where you can take in an animal um, for like a couple weeks. And if you, for instance, have allergies and you're not sure if this animal is going to work for you, you can try it out and see if, if you're reacting to this animal, if the animal is like comfortable in your home and, and if it's a good fit and, and make your decision after a little, a little time. And, you know, obviously it's harder to find, um, animals that are like, purebred of the breeds that are hypoallergenic in the shelter systems, but there sometimes are animals there that, that happen to be hypoallergenic, um, that are up for adoption. But of course, yeah, it, the breeding, breeding situation, purebred situation is not great. It's very much eugenics. Yes. We are very anti-eugenics. <laughs> right. If you learn nothing else today, learn that. Yes. I just want to say I'm really happy. This is like the first time in the history of this podcast where cat people have outnumbered dog people. So awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you come across that side, by the way, um, you know, let me know. Oh, yeah. Animal. But also one of the cool things that this conversation just brought up is that one of the ideas that Sai first came to me talk about was actually like having a therapy animal um as part of luna and like this is the way that like my brain works and and just like what i believe in is like if somebody has a really good idea that they think is good like i'm always going to listen to that we're always going to listen to it at the co-op and like if somebody has an idea for a program or something that like they need like we as long as it kind of aligns with our mission um you know, and being like anti-oppressive, anti-ableist and anti-carceral, like we want to think about all of those ideas because like, it's very limitless, like what we can do when we kind of dream things. And, um, I just think that that's so cool. Well, feel free to call on Ozzy. He's the consummate chiller. He seems very chill. He's very chill. Maybe, maybe someday in the future, we can um, form a partnership with, with a, a local shelter system or animal rescue yeah. organization. That'd be great. All right, folks. Also, it, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we should destroy the cat dog person binary. Also true. Very. But yeah, yeah, it's been about an hour, which is usually when we chime out. So if there's anything else that you want to plug, now's the time. Please, please sign up for our, our uh, genderful workshop. If you're interested, um, it's on the 9th. You can find the info on our Luna Community Care uh, Instagram, as well as my Instagram, which is fairy effects. Um, and we will be having another event a couple days later where we can all dance together and show off the looks we created, whether or not you were at the genderful event. Yeah, fashion show. Cool. All right. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. 
Um, I was just going to say the last thing that I just want to say is that, you know, we really appreciate you all having us here on this podcast because it's things like this through our community that help other people learn about Luna. And, you know, it's so important for somebody to like sit here who might not realize that they're like neurodivergent and say, oh my goodness, like this is what I have been needing all of my life, but like didn't know anything about this or, you know, I need to kind of look at my own ableism and like the dreams that I do have in terms of like work and, and being, you know, part of a community are really different because I've been in communities that don't support me and don't like believe in me and and don't celebrate who I am. And so like, I just want to appreciate you all because this is our first podcast that we've done. Um, and, and it's really cool that you believed enough in us and what we're doing to share that with your listeners. Thank you. You don't have to flatter us. The episode's definitely coming out. Yeah, and you both did great uh, in your first podcast interview. So, yeah, for real. Did really well. And we really do appreciate you coming on and talking about everything and all the work that you did. Thanks for having us. All right. Take it easy. Take care. Thanks, y'all. See ya.